That's good. I hope that was, yeah, I hope that was helpful. How many of you knew you didn't even know about the south entrance and exit? And uh, that'll help uh, alleviate a lot of the traffic. Uh, you know, one of the things about being a church leader is you're never enough of this. You're too much of that. You, like, I, we're so inept. But aren't you glad that how, even though you're a part of a church that is so inept, we have parking problems? Isn't that great? Like 99% of American churches right now wish they had that video that they had to play. So and in spite of our ineptness, you stupid people are here. And we got to have... Uh, we got to have parking help and uh, traffic flow and all that. I'm very, 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 very thankful for that. And uh, we hope that helps. Hey, real quick, next Monday, genogram, what that is. For example, here's Dr. Gary Sweeten, my dear friend. Gary, are you here today? I don't know if he's here today. Uh, Gary uh, took me through this about 10 years ago where it helped me understand what it is is that you, you map your family genealogy. And so when my uncle Robert died in 1936, my mom was one year old at the time. And the reason he died is he had appendicitis. And his, his, my, my grandpa Robert didn't want to take him to the hospital because he didn't want to pay the bills. He was too tight. And Robert died of appendicitis. And my, my grandmother Bessie, which they don't name girls Bessie anymore, do they? <laughs> And my grandmother Bessie resented him for that. He was abusive, King James Version, pounding legalist. And the implications upon my life from that were huge. And that was in 1936. I wasn't born until 1981. <laughs> and they were huge because my mom grew up. And the sideway thing on that is she didn't like men and she didn't like preachers. Do you think that had any impact on my life <laughs> at all? And it'll, it, it's not that it's, hey, let's blame our ancestor time. The genogram helps you go, oh, I understand now. I get it. And the truth will set you free. And so what this series is going to do, what today's going to do, is possibly the Holy Spirit will bring to you some things that you need to deal with and one of the tools that we're going to give you, we're going to also do the Enneagram for families in June, but one of the tools will be next Monday night, May 23rd, for you to get trained in the genogram. I think you're only going to have time to go back a couple of generations, three maybe, and okay, I get it. I understand it. And uh, it's a tremendous tool, so we hope that you will do that. Uh, Henry Nowen said it best. He said, family is the place where the person you least want to live with always seems to be living. And so this series, The Wonderful World of Family, is obviously off the idea, many of us are old enough to remember, the wonderful world of Disney that came on every Sunday night at 7 o'clock, and it was, it, was, it was fireworks over Cinderella's castle, and you can remember the tune, can't you? You can remember the song, it was a fairy tale, but that's not family, is it? The wonderful world of family is, that's why we call it a fam damly. is because it's just not the fairy tale. And what we're going to unpack in this series is why and where does the gospel of Christ impact that. Now, one of the things I want to do today is I want you to leave here feeling better about your family than when you came in, and I'm going to achieve it. This is a money-back guarantee right here. I'm going to let you enjoy your family more than when you came in. And all all i got to do is take you through, for example, one book of the Bible. One book of the Bible, and you'll feel better about your family. 
Okay, now some people will say things like this. I'll think, oh, the Bible's made up of these people who live in stained glass windowed houses and, and they don't represent the real world. They probably love God all their life. No, the Bible is full of people who were messed up. Here's the book of Genesis. And you see that, first of all, it starts off with Cain is jealous of his brother Abel and murders him. No, no he didn't defriend him. He murdered his brother. Okay, we start there. Lamech introduces polygamy into the world. Noah, the most righteous man of his time, gets severely drunk and curses his own grandson. Lot has his residence surrounded by residents of Sodom who want to violate his daughter, or violate his guests. So what does Lot do? He says, don't violate my guests, violate my daughters. Yeah. Have sex with my daughters. Later on, his daughters get him drunk, and, and they get impregnated by him. And Lot is the most righteous man in the city, it says. Abraham plays favorites between his sons, Isaac and Ishmael. And as a result, they are bitter, bitter enemies for a very long time. The family system continues because Isaac plays favorites between his sons, Jacob and Esau, and they become bitter rivals for 20 years. Jacob then plays favorites with his sons, and 11 of them he doesn't like so much. One of them he really favors. His name's Joseph. There's a great Broadway play about him. And the brothers want to kill Joseph, and when you want to kill your brother, and you don't want to kill him, really kill him, you sell him into slavery, because that's what you do with your brother when he's bugging you. Sell him into slavery. The marriages of these patriarchs, absolute disasters. Abraham has sex with his wife's servant. Then he sends her off at his wife Sarah's request out into the wilderness. Isaac and Reuben fight over which boy gets Isaac's blessing. Jacob marries two wives and ends up with both of their maids as his concubines. And they get into a fertility contest. Jacob's firstborn son, Reuben, sleeps with his father's concubine. Another son, Judah, sleeps with his daughter-in-law when she disguises herself as a prostitute. And the reason she does this is because she's childless since her first two husbands, both sons of Judah, were so wicked that God killed them both. All right, nobody you'd heard about after this point was bad enough, but finally these two are bad enough. I'm just killing them. I'm just going to take them out. And Judah had reneged on his obligations to her. And this is, this is, I just took you through 50 chapters of the book of Genesis. These people need a therapist, <laughs> don't they? Dr. Phil, Dr. Laura, Dr. Ruth, Dr. Spock, Dr. Seuss, Dr. Doolittle, Doolittle, Dr. Strange. They need a doctor, don't they? How many of you feel better about your family now? <laughs> Come on, you feel better about your family. You're messed up fam damnly that you have to live with, right? Let me ask you a question. If we are made to live in deep, authentic relationships, that's what we're created for. The basis of all human relationship is this Trinitarian reality of the Father exalts the Son, the Son exalts the, the, the Father, the Spirit exalts the Son, and this community, and then he opens it up and says, I want you to live in this community. That's what we're made for. That's what we're made for. Why? do we avoid people in our family? The very people whose graves we're going to weep over, we detach and avoid. What's going on? Wait, wait, wait. Some, something's going on here. What, did you agree? I mean, on the hand, one hand, we're made for deep relationship, and yet you sit here today, 
and you are dreading that family picnic this summer. What is going on? Is that normal? Is your aloofness just a part of your personality? Just a part of who you are? Or is it something else? Is there a reality at the core that is consistently undermining our relationships? In the metaphor of today's chosen theme, it, there's something going on that is causing us to freeze people out, to give them the cold shoulder. I've seen the movie Frozen once, and it was really good, but that was enough. <laughs> and the power for me is the metaphor of the fear that leads to the freezing out, distancing yourself from people. And this is, the, this is the gist of today's talk. As a matter of fact, if someone asks you what was today's message about, you'll be able to tell them this. This, this is the sermon in one sentence. Here it is. Let it go. <laughs> Isn't that great? It's easy to remember. That song that you've heard 287 times in your minivan. This week is the power that with people it's not possible, but with God all things are possible to move on beyond your resentments because they are at the core. Let me give you a little primer on this. Let me give you a little primer on this thing called resentments that is so powerful, it is the element that is at the core of the 12 steps of human recovery. Hebrew writer said this, see to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. So look at this. He's not saying, make sure that everybody says Jesus is Lord so that they get the amazing grace of God that saves a wretch like me. That's not what he's talking about at all. He's talking about don't miss the power of its impact on your soul. Don't miss it. Because if you do, bitter resentment's going to grow up. And that reality is a colorless, odorless gas that defiles your family system. I was a kid, I had a severe poison ivy allergy. I really did think as a kid that when they talked about leprosy in the Bible, there's, they were talking about poison ivy. They had to be because I, as a kid, you don't have the sense to stay out of it. And so I had severe cases where like I couldn't bend my arms and legs. I had it so bad. And when I read that verse, I think of that because just like some of us, we get near a poison ivy plant, we'll get poison ivy, the person who carries resentments, they put off this gas, this colorless, odorless poison that when people get near them, they don't know how to put a word to it, but they, they sense the resentment. And one of the weird things about resentment is it becomes so attached to your personality, you think it's your personality. This is who I am, my aloofness, my condescension, my sarcasm, my detachment and avoidance. That's just, that's just, that's who I am. Are you sure? Or it is a part of a way that you've learned to adapt in life. Do you know that studies have been done on what's the number one factor of why we like people? It's not hair color, age, common interests, all these things that we think are the reasons why we like another person. The number one reason, it is in every study, it is clear, the number one reason why we like each other is when I sense, I discern that you like me. That's the number one factor. Have you ever had someone that you really didn't like, then you find out they said something good about you, and you thought, you know what, I think she's smarter than I thought she was. Eh? Yeah, she's pretty smart. That person's got her act together. 
Why? Because when we sense someone likes us, we will reciprocate that. The number one factor in why we don't like someone is that they don't like us. And the interesting thing about those of us who carry resentment is we're carrying this bitter poison that comes out of our pores and we don't even know it that sends off, I don't like people. I don't like people. I don't trust people. I avoid people. I detach from people. And this is why the Hebrew writer says, hey, you can sing Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saves a wretch like me, and I'm so glad that I, I was baptized and I said, Jesus Lord, and still miss the grace of God. Hopefully after today you don't. Still miss the impact and the implication upon your soul. Here are a couple statements about resentment. Holding resentment means past wounds and offenses are being resent to your present. This is the way to understand resentment's power. Is just think of the word resent. So think about those of you who never have dealt with your resentments. You wake up every day and as if your soul says, downloading new mail. And it's actually just the old mail from yesterday that you're loading on to today's new mail. And these resentments don't go away. They are resent every day. That's why you really can't live in the present because you're still living in the wounds of the past. It's still defining you. And this is a powerful, subtle thing about resentment. So, uh, like some of us Marvel Universe geeks know about the character Venom. Venom is this character named Eddie Brock who an alien symbiote attaches itself to him and it's this blackness, this black aggressive character that overtakes him and one of the things about resentment is that oh, daily and daily and daily for since you were a little guy a little gal you've lived with this now it's attached itself to you and you again you just think this is a part of who you are well I want to tell you today Christ came to free you from that because you'll never find out who you are as long as every day it's being resent and resent and reset into your soul account look at this one Resentment is the dubious luxury other people may enjoy, but not us. This is my favorite statement in the big book of 12 steps. Resentment is the dubious luxury. Everything about recovery is built around that word, resentment. Because now Bill Wilson and his friends knew that at the core of drinking is not drinking, it's resentment. It's resentment. It's the fear and the detachment that comes with resentment. And so I love this because he says, oh, go ahead, let other people live that way. We've come to understand we can't afford it. We, we don't have the luxury of letting resentments be resent into our soul account every day. Fred Breekner said, of all the deadly sins, resentment appears to be the most fun. To lick your wounds and savor the pain you will give back is in many ways a feast fit for a king. But then it turns out that what you are eating at the banquet of bitterness is your own heart. The skeleton at the feast is you. This is what's really dangerous about resentment is that you can live with it in socially acceptable ways. You just blow them off. You don't, you don't respond anymore. You ghost them. You, you go out of your way to avoid. And that's not it's like you put a knife in their back, but what you're doing is you're building into your soul this detachment, detachment that, that gives you a cold heart the older you get, colder and colder heart. The one thing about the one sister in Frozen is that she lives in this fortress of ice. She wasn't made for that. She wasn't made for that. Anne Lamont said, holding resentments is like drinking rat poison and waiting for the rat to die. 
She said, it is the cause of all spiritual disease. All spiritual diseases come from maybe even stuff that you're not really uh, consciously aware of right now, but you've held on to. It's attached itself to you. And Jesus has more for you, and that more is the interception of that resentment. Here's the cycle of resentment. Resentment produces fear. It nurtures fear. Fear creates detachment and avoidance. Detachment and avoidance create resentment. And you live in this cycle. There's a reason why that you don't have sustainable relationships. It may not just be the other people in your family. It may be you're still holding them, and some of them are dead for things that happened in the past, and you're resending those into your account every day, every day. And it nurtures fear, which nurtures detachment, which nurtures resentment which nurtures fear and on and on it goes now jesus said the person who lives this way in today's terminology would was this this would be freezing your own heart that's why literally it freezes us when we carry resentments we come to realize that when that resentment started a lot of men for example act 13 years of age when the offense took place the reason is they've frozen their heart at age 13 that's why that's why we act not our age. It's not because people don't want to grow up. It's because our heart froze with that resentment. And Jesus says there is this thing that in following him de-ices all that. It begins to melt away all of that frigid detachment. And the word is forgiveness. I, I don't ever like to be divisive just to be divisive. But there is one element of following Christ that no other religion has. It's grace. Every other religion is about strive continually. As a matter of fact, Jesus' last words were his finished. Buddha's last words were strive continually. And right there, it's the difference between these faiths. He said, rest in me. Buddha said, keep going. Keep trying. Keep ascending. Your own effort. And the, and the difference is this thing called grace, which is scandalous. And this power of forgiveness, when it relates to re resentment, is this repetitive process. Healthy people do this at least weekly of remembering, retreating, relinquishing, and releasing. This is why solitude, we say around here, is one of the five practices of spiritual transformation because it's in solitude where we remember, we retreat, we relinquish, and we release. We get with God, and first of all, we remember his forgiveness of us. We remember his amazing grace. Peter one time comes to Jesus and he says, Hey, Jesus, how resentful can I be and still be a Christian? That's not exactly what he said, but he said, how many times must I forgive my brother when he offends me? And what he was asking was, how much resentment can I get away with? And Jesus says, well, here's how many times. And back in that day, the rabbis taught if you forgive someone three times, then you're off the hook. And so Peter doubles that, adds one more for good measure. And he says, seven times? Like, I'm pretty spiritual. You know, I'm kind of the top of the I'm, the, I'm the pick of the litter here, Jesus. I'm pretty good. And Jesus says, no, not seven times, 70 times seven. What he was saying was not literally 490 times, but forgiveness means a continual process of remembering God's grace. And then Jesus told a story of a man who owed essentially the owner of the business $30 million he was in debt. Now, I don't know how a minimum wage worker gets $30 million, 
in debt, but he did, which means in that language, as it would it be today, if you were $30 million in debt, you're in trouble. They don't call them loan bunnies or loan poodles. They call them loan sharks, don't they? You're in trouble if you're $30 million in debt from, from, from whatever. What did the master do? What did the CEO do? The man came and begged for, for, for forgiveness of that loan that he couldn't repay, and the master said, okay, I'm going to absorb that debt into me. I'm going to forgive that debt. Now, contrary to what the United States government thinks, debt doesn't just disappear. Boo-hoo-hoo, it's gone. Someone has to absorb the debt. Someone has to absorb the debt. The owner absorbs the debt. He takes the $30 million cost. If you don't understand what Jesus did for you, that's what he did. He said, sin's wages are death. I'll be the death eater. I'll eat sin. I'll eat death in my body. I'll absorb it, and then I will go beyond it and live forever. I'll resurrect. And so what Jesus did is he absorbed the penalty of sin, death, into his own body. You were forgiven debt. Isn't that amazing? And that $30 million represents our sin debt to a holy God. We could never repay that. You could never strive continuously long enough to repay the moral debt that you and I owe to God. This man's forgiven. He goes out on the street. He happens to bump into a guy who owes him $30. And he says to that guy, pay up. What? You owe me $30. Pay up. And it says he strangles the guy. And word gets back to the boss, the CEO, that he had just forgiven this man $30 million. And he would not forgive another man $30. And he calls the man into his office and says, you're done here. You don't get it. And then Jesus adds these words. There is an emotional, I'll call it, this gets to the heart of God when we refuse to release people and our resentments of them, and yet we take communion. We receive baptism. We claim God's forgiveness. This is how my heavenly Father will treat you unless you forgive your brothers from the heart. This is serious stuff. This is serious stuff. There is no more greater oxymoron in the world than an unforgiving Christ follower. It's the greatest oxymoron in the world. So it is this process of remembering. One of the reasons why the early church worshiped together every week is they would sing songs about the amazing grace of God revealed in Christ. So when we sing about God's amazing love together, we're reaffirming, remembering his amazing grace to us. But that's not where it ends. That's where it starts. Where it goes from there is it means I also retreat from fighting the hurt. Now right here it's really critical because one of the things you'll learn in this series is this concept of family systems. Family systems. How many of you have ever, has anybody here ever been in a riptide in the ocean? It's a, it's a, I've never been in a riptide, but it's a horrific experience as the ocean creates this, these channels, these tunnels that will just pull you out to sea. And anybody who's ever been in a riptide knows that you can't beat that power. All you can do is swim with it parallel to the shore. So I just saved someone's life this summer who's going to be on vacation and caught in a riptide. What did Pastor Charlie say about that again? And, and why? This is family systems. Family systems are these powerful currents that we get caught in, and the worst thing you can do in a riptide is fight it. That'll, it'll take you out. 
The best thing you can do is swim with it along the shore, parallel to the shore. And when I remember God's grace and I can bring the hurt to the cross, I, I come to Christ with that resentment that I carry and I retreat from it, meaning I, I can't beat it. I can't beat it on my own. With God, all things are possible. That resentment you feel for the neglect, abuse, and devaluation, you retreat from fighting it. Stop fighting it. That means you may need to go through the steps so you can give up the drugs and behaviors that have anesthetized that pain and fear so you can stop fighting. You don't realize that your heavy drinking, your heavy drug use, your compulsions, you're fighting that pain. You're fighting that resentment. That's what you're doing. You're still caught in that riptide. And once you have the safety of God's grace, you begin to retreat from that and rest in it with him because that's a safe place to be. That's your only hope of getting out. Then you relinquish your right to retaliate. See, some people think forgiveness is forgetting, pretending, excusing behavior. It's none of that. Forgiveness doesn't mean I excuse the behavior that they perpetrated on me. That doesn't mean that I forget it. It doesn't mean that that person wasn't wrong. It simply means I relinquish the right I have to bring justice to this situation. The hard part about forgiveness is in the middle of the word forgiveness is the word give. I give up my sense of justice. I relinquish that right. That's again what God did on the cross. Don't, don't take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. This is exactly what Jesus did on the cross. People always talk about God's wrath is coming. God's wrath is coming. God's wrath has already come. It was called Golgotha. His wrath has already come. He absorbed his wrath in his body on the cross, and he took revenge on sin and death. And he says, now that's the way you live. Forgiveness then means once I do that, I release that person. I release them. They're no longer in debt to me. They no longer owe me. And you say, there's no way. You don't understand how I've been hurt. With you, it's impossible. With God, it's possible that that person no longer has power over you. They're no longer responsible for that cold part of your heart that's not free. And you're sitting close to someone, I guarantee you, who has experienced the grace of God so deeply that they actually have a relationship of authenticity with someone who violated them, abused them, neglected them. Why? Because with amazing grace, it's possible to release offenders. It is. It's possible that the one who said, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing, can now live in you so much that you have an internal grace so powerful that it releases those who have offended you. It's really amazing. I know people who were abused and they went through a deep, deep process of inventory, moral inventory and in their resentments, which had been preceded by by a surrender to the care of Christ, which was preceded by a knowledge that there was a power greater than themselves, which was preceded by the capacity to say, my life is no longer what I want it to be. It is unmanageable. Uh, the resentments are, are really driving my life. And when you get to that point, you can be free. And if the sun sets you free, you shall be free indeed. This is the new human race he came to create. 
the second Adam, the second Eve. We don't live like other people live in this stuff. Now think about your family. Think about that person who has wounded you, who has shamed you, And think about God's grace and think about these words, Mark eleven twenty five, 25, when Jesus said, now you, when you stand praying, you say, Father, forgive me of my sins as I forgive that person. Can you picture that person in your mind right now that you know you need to release? You need to let go. And you may have to do it 490 times. And someday, you'll have a heart that is no longer a heart of stone. It's a heart of flesh. It's being renewed day by day. I was, uh, as a child, I was abused, and I have a relationship with the person who abused me. And that's why I know that with Christ, all things are possible. That's why I know that. I don't, I'm not speaking about something I don't know about. I know about this. And what he said he will do. His word is true. Will you choose to remember, retreat, relinquish, and release? It's just a part of your way you live. It's just a part of, it's just a part of your life. I was... Um, going back some, through some old stuff, and I found this quote. One writer put it this way. He said, imagine God de one day God gathers his angels to him. He says, hey, 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 guys, I, I have an idea. I'm going to create what I call a family. And an angel says, well, what is it? And God says, I'm excited about this idea. Of course, I'm excited about all my ideas. One of the great things about being God is you just never have any bad ideas. But this one is unique. The family is going to be the way that I connect people to each other and to me in love. It'll work like this. Adult people, grown-up people, big people will sign up to take care of a tiny little stranger. And the angel asks, are they going to get paid for doing this? And God says, no. Actually, that little stranger is going to cost them more money than they could ever fathom. Not only that, but that little stranger won't even be able to talk at first. If it did, it wouldn't say thank you. It'll just cry and scream and make the grown-up lose sleep. And they'll make messes all the time. They have to clean up, and they'll be really vulnerable. You have to watch that kid 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And then when it is two, that little stranger will be able to say words like, No! Mine! And it'll throw tantrums. And I'm thinking about inventing puberty. Although I'm not too sure about that one yet. But if I do, they will get these strange things called hormones that will make them go crazy. Odd things will happen to their bodies. They'll get pimples. Their voices will crack. Their lymphatic systems will melt down. And then they'll grow up. And just when they're mature and beautiful and interesting and able to contribute, they'll move away. <laughs> That's the idea. What do you all think? And the angels kind of shuffle around, look down at their feet and say, oh, I don't know, who's going to tell him? I, I don't want to tell him. Lord, Lord, no one's going to no want to do that. 
Who's going to sign up for that? Why would they do that? And here's where God gets really excited. God says, they won't know why. They'll look down at that little body. They'll look at those little hands and those tiny little feet, and they'll think that that tiny little stranger is beautiful. Even though that baby looks like every other baby, and even though all babies look just like Winston Churchill, they'll think that baby is beautiful. And one day that stranger will smile at them, and they'll think they've won the lottery. They won't have words to describe it. And one day that little stranger will say, Dada. And then Mama. Dads are so sacrificial and nurturing, they'll say, Dada first. But moms are good too. And one day, those little arms and hands will reach out and they will wrap around that neck and it's going to feel that, that, to that grown-up that it's the first time they understand why arms and hands were created. Because in a sort of sneaky way, what family is all about is my grace. They'll experience my gratuitous goodness They'll see self-giving love. Children will learn that they are loved and prized and belong before they have ever done a single thing to deserve it. And the grown-ups will learn that when they give, they receive more in return and they receive the most and they will learn that giving is the best way to live and they'll learn about me and my kingdom and then one day when I tell them, human race, I'm your father. You're my daughter. You're my son. You're my child. They'll get it. They'll be wrecked. They'll be undone. Just to think that I love them like that. And how I'll achieve this is I'll do this through this thing I call family. Father, it's through our families that we learn grace. Grace that is greater than all of our mess-ups. Grace that restores and regenerates the human heart and takes a cold heart and makes it new again. And what was winter becomes spring and newness of life that if any person is in this Christ, they are a new creation and the old things have gone away. Holy Spirit of God, speak to our hearts today and our souls if there is a gal here today within the sound of my voice who knows it is time, may today be the day that she begins to realize she is powerless over the riptide of her family system and she gives herself to the care of her Savior. She does a fearless moral inventory in the resentment she's carrying and 
Today is the day she'll look back and say, that's when I began my journey of if the sun sets you free, you will be free indeed. May today no one miss the grace of God. May tomorrow no one miss the grace of God. We thank you. And we thank you that in Jesus we know this grace. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. See you next week.